This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live. Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering a series of lectures about business and presentation, including Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, The Art of Public Speaking, and Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. Order any one of these courses for only $9.95 for limited time at thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. Hi, and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate Supreme Court correspondent. And if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you know that I am a huge believer in the principle that everyone, I mean everyone, can get a lot out of listening to oral argument at the Supreme Court. It's just not as complicated as you think it is. But this past Tuesday, in a case called Montgomery versus Louisiana, the issue before the court, while it was fairly simple, was really complicated. So complicated, we almost didn't hear about the core issue we want to talk about today. Now, the question before the court was pretty clear. In 2012, the Supreme Court decided that mandatory life without parole sentences for juvenile killers were unconstitutional. The issue in Montgomery is simply whether that applies retroactively to juveniles who were sentenced long before. And in this particular case, the juvenile in question is 69-year-old Henry Montgomery, who's been in jail for a killing he committed 52 years ago. We didn't talk about Montgomery or even juvenile killers much this week because the court was engaging in this battle royale over technical roadblocks. Have a listen to Richard Bernstein, the oral advocate that was appointed to the court to explain why the court shouldn't even be hearing this appeal. In today's case, there is no jurisdiction over that question because the point of Section 1257 is to enforce the Supremacy Clause. And the Supremacy Clause states that when, quote, the laws of the United States, unquote, apply, quote, the judges, and this is, these are the key words, in every state shall be bound thereby. Confused? You're not alone. Stay tuned. We've invited Professor Robert J. Smith, a frequent Slate contributor, a visiting scholar at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, and formerly an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Uh, Rob Smith co-authored an amicus brief in the Montgomery case, along with several other notable law professors, including Charles Ogletree of Harvard. And in that brief, they essentially urged the court to consider 
doing away with all life without parole sentences for juveniles, calling all of them unconstitutional. So Rob Smith, welcome to Amicus. Thank you for having me, Dahlia. So let's start at the beginning, Rob. Help me make sure that I'm making this clearer and not murkier for our listeners. Here are the facts as I know them. In 2012, in a case called Miller v. Alabama, the high court ruled that automatic life without parole sentences for juveniles who committed their crimes before they were 18 violated the Eighth Amendment, correct? That's correct. And this doesn't mean that a life without parole sentence cannot be imposed by a judge when they're sentencing. It simply means that the judge has to carefully consider all sorts of factors. What kind of factors are we thinking about? The kind of facts that you'd think about are things like, because this person isn't an adult yet, is it somebody who's going to change over time? Is this really somebody who's committed a crime and they're so dangerous to society that we should never, ever be able to release them from prison? Or is this somebody who, like a lot of people who are teenagers, made some impulsive decisions, uh, is clearly headed down a wrong path? But somebody that, you know, years and even decades later is going to be a person who can safely reenter society again. And I think what the, what the court basically wants to do is to say very, very, very few juveniles, if any, are we so clear about when they're 14, 15, 16, that they're never going to turn into productive members of society that we can, you know, sort of lock them up and throw away the key. Most people are going to change enough that we should at least reconsider the question of whether they can reintegrate into society at a later point, you know, years, maybe decades down the line. And the important thing to understand after Miller in 2012 is that it doesn't mean that courts can't impose life without parole. It means they have to just look really carefully at the factors you've described. And what Miller leaves open is this question of whether this is just a case that is going to change the rules going forward or whether it's what we in Constitution speak call whether it's retroactive, right? Whether every single person who's ever been given a mandate mandatory life without parole sentence is eligible to have a new hearing, to have a new parole hearing, to have a new sentencing, something that allows the judge to do what the judge didn't do in the first instance. Is that about right? That's correct. So so here's where we are. And again, I think my math is right, but you'll let me know. Since Miller came down in 2012, 14 state Supreme Court have simply ruled that Miller applies retroactively. Supreme Court is silent, so the states decide. Seven state Supreme Court says, no, it doesn't. And we have states that have passed sentencing laws that seem to be applying Miller retroactively. So we have a lot of action in the state courts. And Henry Montgomery in 2012 says, hey, uh, I've been in jail since I was a kid. I want a new hearing. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what he's accused of and why maybe race and his youth and all sorts of other factors that the judge might have looked at did not come into play at his sentencing? Sure. So I think the first thing to think about when you think of Montgomery is that Henry Montgomery is 69 years old right now. And so the question 
that we ask now about if, if your trial was today, you know, well, who were you when you committed this crime? And, and the answer was Henry Montgomery was a was a kid at the time that, who was skipping school. Uh, and when he's skipping school, he, you know, police officer comes up to him and in a panic, he shoots the police officer, which is obviously an, a terrible thing to do. But it's not sort of a premeditated murder. He didn't plan on killing anybody. It really, by all accounts, it, is something was just an, an impulsive uh, reaction. And so one thing that you would look at today if you were sentencing him is, you know, this crime reflects some sort of impulsivity, something that that is common to juveniles generally. But if you'd look at who Henry Montgomery is as a person, you'd also realize that not only was he then 17 years old, he's a high school student, but he's also somebody who has, you know, a diminished culpability in the sense that he has a low IQ score, right? He's somebody that if he were subject to the death penalty, you know, he might not be able to get it or it would be close because his intellectual functioning is so low. And so, you know, none of those things are considered when Henry Montgomery is tried, you know, now decades ago, a half century ago, like they would be if he were tried today. All the jury did is say, yes, this guy, this kid killed a police officer. And once that finding was made, Henry Montgomery was serving life without the possibility of parole. Um, And I think one thing that you mentioned is that, you know, Louisiana today might have its problems with race relations, but Louisiana 50 years ago in 1963, remember, this is like Lyndon Johnson is the president when this guy's tried and sentenced to life without parole. And at that time, there's just this backdrop of of racial tension. Uh, There's reports from the media that there were cross burnings in the town. You know, the press referred to him in ways that were highly inflammatory. Um, you know, at the time, actually, he's not sentenced to life without parole. At the time, he's actually given the death penalty. Um, and then only later when the Supreme Court says, hey, juveniles can't get a death penalty, is he given life without parole? So I think that just shows you what a different time it was in Louisiana 50 years ago than it is today. And that's kind of the whole point of of giving people a shot at a possibility of parole and not automatically imposing a life sentence. Because, you know, 50 years later, it turns out people often are very, very, very different people like uh, Mr. Montgomery is today. You know, he's worked in prison. You know, he's sort of been a coach and helped other inmates. He's somebody who's really transformed his life over the course of, uh, of 50 years. So, Rob, I hate to do this to you uh, because this is the part where people glaze over, but I wonder if you could explain how the court usually goes about deciding this pretty technical doctrinal question of whether a case is retroactive or not. In other words, uh, before we can look at Henry Montgomery's life and all the factors you just laid out, the court is going to need to make a decision about whether Miller was a case that was forward-looking or backward-looking. So how does the court usually approach that? Absolutely. So first, the default rule is that the decision will not be retroactive. Most of the time, The decision will not be retroactive. It'll only apply going forward. But the two exceptions to that are, first, if the court finds that this new rule has actually said that the government could not prohibit a certain type of conduct or that a a particularly severe sentence is no longer available when a person commits the same crime today that they were convicted of 
committing before. So, for example, in the mid-2000s, the Supreme Court said that in a death penalty case, a person who is a uh, is a juvenile when they've committed their homicide can no longer be sentenced to death. And so that rule would apply to every defendant, no matter when they were convicted, because we're saying that the option of sentencing you to death is no longer available. So the first question is, is it conduct that is no longer can be sentenced or could be sentenced the same way? The second way you can get to retroactivity is if we say, look, this rule is so important. It goes to the fundamental fairness of a trial. It's a rule that we understand that ordered liberty requires that this rule applies to the trial. Then you can have a retroactive decision. But in practice, those two things are relatively rare. Most of the new cases don't apply going backwards. So, so Rob, I want to play for you uh, for a minute. This is Justice Breyer at oral argument this week. And he's talking to Richard Bernstein, who has been appointed by the court to say the court does not even have jurisdiction to hear this case, uh, shouldn't be mucking about in Montgomery in the first place. And Breyer, in effect, he says, what are we doing? You know, th- this guy's in jail. Uh, why can't we let him out? So let's listen. Is there anything else you can say? Because I could make, uh, you know, I could say, which witches being a witch? There were some people in Salem who were imprisoned for being a witch. And lo and behold, in 1820, it was held by this court that that violated the Constitution. Rob, is is Breyer trying to find a way to say, like, look, we we just have to hear Montgomery's case because we're holding him in a jail and the thing that we are holding him for is no longer constitutional? Is that the gist of this question? I think Justice Breyer is trying desperately to find a way to say that there's a federal question here that the court can decide. In order for there to be jurisdiction for the court to hear the case, the state court had to decide some federal question. And I think what Justice Breyer is trying to do is saying, you know, if there's something that's so bad, you know, we're holding somebody that's a witch, like clearly somebody uh, who, you know, our superstitions, our hysteria uh, leads us to believe uh, should be incarcerated. But now we know better. We've seen the light. We understand that you just don't incarcerate witches for being witches. Then surely the courts have to be able to reach in and decide those cases. And I think what the the best answer against Justice Breyer's point is that, sure, they can reach and decide those cases. When that case gets to federal court, they just can't reach in and decide the case in state court if they're talking about whether or not retroactivity applies. And going to that same question of whether there is a federal constitutional issue here. I just want to play as a a counterpoint to what we've just talked about with Breyer, a moment of Justice Scalia, who is, you know, going all kinds of crazy on Kyle Duncan. Kyle Duncan uh, represents the state of Louisiana. He says, actually, the court does have jurisdiction. I want to be clear, the court has jurisdiction, but uh, Montgomery, you know, should not get resentenced. But let's just listen to this audio of Justice Scalia just completely ferociously making the point that you just made, Rob, which is we don't hear cases before their time. So it seems to us that as a practical matter, this court ought to weigh in. It's going to weigh in sooner or later. It's going to weigh in either in a federal habeas case or from a state court. Um, We weigh in when we have jurisdiction. You think that doesn't matter at all? No, of course jurisdiction matters just the way we just, of course, So so what you just said doesn't, doesn't really make much sense. 
Well, I think it makes let's, sense. Let's get in there quickly, whether we have jurisdiction or not. Uh, You're not saying that, are you? Well, no, we're not saying okay. that. We're not, we're not saying that. We're saying if the federal issue. So I want to talk to you for a minute about uh, the brief that you and a bunch of other concerned lawyers filed in this case. But first, I want to tell you about one of our sponsors on today's show. And that is The Great Courses. You all know, because you listen to this podcast, that learning new and interesting things does not stop when you finish school. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of The Great Courses. These are amazing, engaging, interesting video and audio lectures from some of the best professors in the country on a huge variety of subjects. And The Great Courses has a collection of lecture series that is geared toward professionals that I really want to recommend to you this week, series that include Scientific Secrets for a Powerful Memory, How Conversation Works, The Art of Public Speaking, and Influence, Mastering Life's Most Powerful Skill. Any one of these courses would be great for anyone, especially in the legal and business fields, because they afford you all kinds of valuable tools and insights to strengthen your presentation skills, to become a better negotiator, or even to sharpen your memory. So if you, like me, someday want to argue an actual case at the U.S. Supreme Court, I think you should check out The Great Courses for yourself. And here's a special limited time offer. Order any of these four business and presentation courses for just $9.95. This special price of $9.95 is only available for a limited time, so order now. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. I want to turn back to our guest, uh, Rob Smith, who authored an amicus brief, uh, along with several other professors in this case, that tried to find kind of a third way for the court to get around all the technical stuff that uh, is impeding them, perhaps in this case. Maybe before I do that, Rob, can you just give us a number for how many people would be affected? Uh, How many juvenile, mandatory juvenile life without parole sentences uh, are are on the line here to, so that we kind of can get our heads around how many, I want to say juveniles, but some of them are 69. But how many people are we talking about here? So when the court decides Miller, and again, during oral argument in Montgomery, they're throwing the number around 2,000 people. But the reality is that we no longer know what that number is. And it's it's significantly less than 2,000 is the best estimate, because states have decided that Miller applies retroactively. And, you know, some states have begun to do uh, new sentencing hearings. Other states have uh, once allowed, you know, nine of them uh, three years ago that allowed life without parole sentences no longer allow it at all. And so that's decreased the population. And so the reality is it's significantly less than 2000, but 2000 sort of the outer limit. And that's a good way to begin to talk about your brief, which really urges the court to find that the Eighth Amendment is always going to be violated when you sentence a youthful offender to life without parole. And it seems to me that at least half of that argument is based on doing the kind of counting you just did for us. Yeah, when the court looks at whether or not a punishment practice violates the Constitution, One of the most important questions it asks is, is there a national consensus against this practice? And so the court will look at a couple things. They'll say, well, what are legislatures doing? Uh, Are we formally authorizing life without parole sentences? Uh, And what we found is that nine states in the last three years, which is an incredible 
incredible number of states. Anybody who follows legislation of any kind, to have nine different states in three years prohibiting life without parole is an incredible number. So the court will look at those nine states and they'll also look at the six states before the case Miller was decided. So a total of 15 states that just flat out ban life without parole in their statute. But then the court also says, okay, like even if you have juvenile life without parole on the books, are you actually using it in practice? And if you ask, are you actually using it in practice? It turns out there's another dozen or, or even 13 states that really don't use it. There's just very few people or nobody that are serving life without parole sentences for crimes that were committed when they were juveniles. Or there are states that just allow life without parole sentences on the books, but for very narrow offenses, like the killing uh, of a police officer might be, you know, just really narrow offense, but we don't allow in any other circumstance. And so the court looks at these things and says, look, like, in general, the country has really moved away and quickly from the idea that life without parole is an appropriate sentence for a juvenile. Just to be clear, I should say life without the possibility of parole. What we ask for in our brief is not that any person ever be released from prison. Our point is that the best time to make a decision about whether or not a juvenile is going to eventually become a person who's transformed their lives, that's redeemed themselves and can be safely released from prison is not at the time of trial when the person's 13 or 14 years old. It's many years or decades later when somebody like Henry Montgomery is 69 years old and we can look backwards over what they've actually done in their life instead of trying to look in our crystal ball and predict the future. And and it's probably important here that one of the things you write in your brief is that at this point, there are only, in fact, nine states that are responsible for 82 percent of all these life without parole sentences, right? I think that's a major factor, right? Because what it's showing is that these sentences are concentrated, and they're not only concentrated in this handful of states. If you look deeper, there are just a handful of counties. It's five or six counties that are responsible for like 20%, right? One in every five juvenile life without parole sentences are in like five counties in the United States. So Philadelphia County, for example, right, has almost 10%. It's like 9% of all of the juvenile life without parole sentences in the United States. And so when you say, okay, well, there are, you know, a thousand or there are 2,000 people serving life without parole sentences for crimes they committed as a juvenile, and then you realize that they're not spread evenly throughout the country, but like almost one in every 10 is from Philadelphia County, right? Uh, it, it becomes clear just how antiquated this practice is. Most of the rest of the country, either in law or in practice, has just totally abandoned the idea uh, that, that we should take kids and we should sentence them to die in prison without ever giving them an opportunity at a later point to show that they're no longer the same person they were all those years earlier. And maybe, Rob, just for the philosophical piece that we, we haven't really touched on here, but it seems to me undergirds so much of this debate is, you know, so many of these mandatory life without parole sentences come about as a result of the, you know, war on crime, the get tough, you know, the law and order movement, the notion that there are these teenage super predators, you know, out there on the streets. These are kind of antiquated ideas, right? Yeah. So if you look at 
sort of the trajectory of when the United States is actually sentencing juveniles to life without parole, the spike, a gigantic spike, is really in the in the mid 1990s, mid to late 1990s. And that's a time where you turn on your radio or your television and there are commentators and academics and they're saying, you know, first it starts with there are crack babies and and, and oh my God, like the, the you know, this crime is gonna spill out from the inner city uh, to your neighborhood. And then it's like, well, it's not just these terrible drugs like crack that are gonna spill out from your neighborhood, it's really these kids. These kids are super predators. They're a a new breed of kid that we've never, ever seen before. And of course, like all the depictions of who the super predators are, are are black, right? And and so it becomes this really uh, racist idea that black kids are scary, that they're uh, unapologetic psychopaths, and that they're never going to be able to change. And it turns out, you know, that it's just hysteria that's going on. And if you go back to the counties that are sentencing people to juvenile life without parole, a lot of these counties are places where you have a sort of a a core high African-American population. And then you have these white flight suburbs. So it's kind of like a donut jurisdiction with the white flight suburbs outside of it. And, you know, St. Louis is a good example of this. It's one of the sort of high use counties. And you just have this gigantic racism that's coming, you know, from that outer ring suburb into the core. And you see it not just in juvenile life without parole. I mean, you see it playing out now in Ferguson with, you know, the sort of the protests after the police shooting there. You see it in death penalty cases where where the prosecutors are striking all of the black jurors. It's like these counties have real problems, not with racial disparities, but with racism. And juvenile life without parole is one manifestation of those problems. Now, Rob, it cannot fail to escape your notice that we have now talked about juvenile life without parole more than the court did uh, when they heard uh, Montgomery being (laughs) argued on Tuesday. And so I think I want to just ask you, given the high, high barriers, um, you know, the fact that it looked like the court was very concerned that they just did not have jurisdiction to hear this case and the sense that maybe even if they could, this wasn't a good candidate for retroactivity. Is this issue going to get resolved, do you think, this term? Or do you foresee based on, and we never, you know, let uh, listeners bet on what guests tell us, but do you foresee uh, this being the case that resolves this life without parole, mandatory life without parole for juveniles questions once and for all? The problem with all predictions, which is, you know, why we shouldn't decide that somebody can never be redeemed when they're 13 or 14 years old, is that it's, you know, really difficult to, to see into the future. Uh, but I mean, one thing I can say is that it looks like, like you said, the court is having a really hard time around uh, uh, several issues. The first is, do we even have jurisdiction to decide this question at all? And I think that's a close call, right? And then you move to the next question, which is, If we have the ability to decide this case, then should we hold that this case is retroactive and it applies to everybody who's currently serving life without parole for a homicide that they committed when they were a juvenile? And that seems to be an easier question, that the answer is yes, but it's still close. It's it's a debatable question. You see the justice have some, some uncomfort with that. 
But like, even if you decided those two terribly complicated questions, both of which have side effects outside of the context of juvenile life without parole, uh, and the jurisdiction question doesn't even have the benefit of being fully briefed by all the parties, you have these complicated, messy questions, we're still left with the same problem, which is some juveniles are getting life sentences Right, because in an original a, a trial, if it happens today, right? If you go back and you say this is retroactive, and in Louisiana, Montgomery get, uh, gets a new a, a new trial today, right? It's one thing because he's sixty nine years old, but for a new juvenile that's fourteen years old today, all Miller requires is that we go and say, "Hey, um, you know, you're a juvenile. You have these mental health problems, or you have intellectual disability, um, or you know, you're actually a pretty good kid, but this looks like it's an outlier. So we should." Produce 40 years later, what's going to happen to you. But it doesn't say, hey, you know what? We don't have the ability to make these kind of crystal ball predictions today. And so we're still left with the same problem. And so for me, and what we're trying to, we're trying to say in the Ogletree brief is you have these complicated questions of jurisdiction and retroactivity. And even if you solve them, we still have a real constitutional problem without life without parole. So what you should do instead is you should call for additional briefing in this case and say, is juvenile life without parole an unconstitutional sentence, period, right? Do you always have to give juveniles at some point, years or decades down the line, an ability to show that they have transformed their lives and they can reenter uh, into society? We think that's the easier path. And, you know, we, we hope the court takes that route. Rob Smith is a frequent Slate contributor and a visiting scholar at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law. He's formerly an assistant professor at the University of North Carolina School of Law and co-authored an important amicus brief in the Montgomery case. Rob Smith, thank you so much for joining us this week on what was certainly the most technical and head-spinning edition of Amicus. Thank you. Before we go, I want to tell you a little bit about our second sponsor for today's show. As you probably know, every weekend, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. And that's a lot of searching, and it takes a lot of work. But even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life, what you see from your front porch, is directly connected to the national news. So watch Rachel as she connects those dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. That just about does it for this week's episode of Amicus, and we would love to hear your thoughts on today's episode. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. We read all of your mail, and we do our best to respond, and we really love your letters, and we thank you. We also love reading the reviews that you leave on our iTunes page, and you can always add your own thoughts there by searching for Amicus in the iTunes store and clicking the Ratings and Reviews tab. Your reviews are a really great way to let other folks find out about the podcast. You can listen to all of our past episodes at slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll find transcripts there as well. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can always sign up for a free trial at slate.com slash amicus plus. Thank you, as always, to the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, where our show is produced. Our producer is Tony Field, and Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and we'll be back with you soon for another edition of Amicus.
our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See why CNBC ranks Minnesota number four best state to live and work. A great place to work, an even better place to live. ExploreMinnesota.com slash live.